1: So God was saying to Moses, Moses, I have allowed the cries of the lost Jewish people to come to me. Moses, will you allow the cries of the lost Jewish people to come to you? Moses, I've held out my golden scepter to the cries of the Jewish people. Now, Moses, the question is, will you hold out the golden scepter in your heart and let the cries of the lost Jewish people reach you? That's the first step. That's step one for Moses to become God-sent man. That's step one for Moses to become a man of God, for Moses to become God's man on the scene. That's the first step. Moses had to be like God, and Moses had to be like God in letting the cries of lost Jewish people come to him. And if we want to be God sent man, if we want to be God's man, God's man of God, to the lost Jewish people or to any lost people for that matter, we have to be like God and let their cries come to us. If we say, okay, well, I see I've got an obligation here. I'm supposed to bring the gospel to the lost people. And if we just say, but I'm not about to let my heart become upset and disturbed and possessed with this terrible tragedy. I'm going to keep my heart distant from that person or that situation. Evangelism, okay. Explain the gospel, okay. But get heart involved where I get all upset from hearing their cries, no. If we take that position or if anyone takes that position, then we're not like God. It's not like God because God let the cries of the lost reach him, come to him as it says. If we take that position, then it's not only we're not like God, but the lost can see right through it. They can see directly through it. We become absolutely transparent and they see it's mechanical. Oh, it's nothing more than duty. It's nothing more than something he has to do. It's nothing more than religion. It's nothing more than tradition. And if you take on this so-called sterile evangelical formula that we're following like a robot of one, two, three, repeat after me with no heart involvement, and so God says to Moses and to us, step one is to, if you want to help the lost, is be like me and let their cries come to you. And think, how do you let the cries of the lost come? And how should Moses, how do we do that? Well, first of all, we think of how desperate it is to be separated from the creator and the judge. That separation that's spoken about in Isaiah 59. is that separation. When we think of the separation, then we hear the cry for help to not be separated from God. We think of how shocking It is to know that you've been appointed once to die and after that, the judgment. There's just one chance. After that to die, is appointed once to die and after that the judgment and then we hear the cry for help. We think of how frightening it is to look at the grave and the fear that comes of having been laid in the grave and the fear of waking up when the greatest hope was annihilation and disintegration, but the fear of waking up only to be falling into the hands of an angry God. And we hear the cry for help. We think of how terrifying it is to be dragged into hell by Satan scratching the way to not be dragged and digging in the heels, but to be helplessly dragged. And we think of how how terrifying that is to be dragged into hell by Satan, and we hear a cry for help. And we think of how horrifying it is to be tormented with pain and anguish with with no stop, eternity for hell. We think about that, that we hear the cry for help. Now, this is what God is saying to Moses. He's saying, look Moses, if I have let the cry of the lost children of Israel to come to me, you need to let the cry of the lost come to you. Same like God saying to us. If God has let the cry of the lost come to him, we need to let the cry of the lost come to us. Because the lost know, when we care for their soul. And Do- David David said something very, very important in Psalm 142 about knowing if a person really cared for his soul. And he says this in uh, Psalm 142 four, where David says, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man, cared for my soul see what david was saying there david was saying he looked he looked and he said no person would know him boy doesn't that remind us back in the i remember back in the 60s and 70s when there was just an outcry in the city of new york because crimes were being committed and where there was a high density of people living in the area and there were screams and cries and people would open the window and then they quickly shut it and it was always the same thing they didn't want to get involved. That was the big phrase. Now, I don't want to get involved, because if you get involved, then it becomes a trouble for you. So you just shut the, the window and let the crimes go on. And they'd rather just see a crime and walk away and pretend as though they didn't see it, because they don't want to get involved. And so David says, he, he, that's what he was saying in Psalm 142, 4, when he says, I looked, I looked, and there was no man that would know me. Nobody took any time to know him. And he said, no man cared for my soul. So God says, look, step number one, Moses, step number one for us, know the lost, know them, and know them in their desperation, and know them in their loneliness, and know them in their terror, and know them in their horror, and know them in their fright, and know them in their fears. Know them, know them, God says. And then he says, care for their soul care for what happens to them, care for their eternity. And so God is calling for us to know the lost. God is calling for us to care for the souls of the lost. And he says, and that's what it means to be sent by God. And that's why God went through all of this description to Moses, to as a preparation for Moses, to say, Moses, this is delivering the lost 101. First, hear their cries and see the state that they're in. Know them and care for their souls. And no one, no one can be God's man. No one can be God's sent man. No one can be the man of God to deliver the lost unless he has God's broken heart for the lost, because that's really what God is talking here. He is broken, as a broken heart for the lost. Now, after God has told Moses this, to really to lead Moses into what he had to do, but also showing that he has this motivation he has his motivation to see the children of Israel get delivered from the Egyptians then in verse 7 and then God has told Moses that he has come down to deliver them and then God tells Moses that he's going to use Moses to deliver them. And so in Exodus 3:10 this is where we go come now therefore and I will send thee Unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here again, we see how God reveals to man this truth so that he will use it to deliver the lost. God has saved believers. And if any person has come to the Lord Jesus Christ, cried out to him, and asked for God's mercy covenant, mercy covenant, of receiving the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for his sins, be saved, become a child of God, live forever, then God has filled the believer with the knowledge of himself and God then makes the believer responsible to bring the gospel to others who are lost. And that call that Moses had from God to deliver the lost Jewish people is true of the people of Israel as well. Let me explain what I mean. When God gave his oracles to the Jewish people, he then made them responsible to carry them to the rest of the world. You know, this is brought out in Deuteronomy 32.8 when God's when Moses described how God made decisions about boundaries of countries, of the Gentiles, of the goyim, of the nations, the boundaries. And it says here in Deuteronomy 32.8, Moses explains, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, that means their land, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. This means that when God made the decision as to this boundary should be here and it should go to this river, it should go to these mountains, and he made these decisions as to where the boundaries of the nation should be, he did it with an eye on the number of the children of Israel. Why? Why did he do that? Because he looked to see how many Jewish people there were and he thought how they could reach the people of the world, the goyim, the nations of the world, how they could reach the nations of the world with the word of God. And as he looked at the number of the Jewish people who would be going to taking the word of God to the nations, and he looked at the nations, he says, okay, we'll have this border here, this border here, because then the Jewish people can go there and they can bring the word of God to this corner and to that corner. So when he said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, this is the same God who we're talking about here. And so the basis for him setting the boundaries of the nations, the number of the children of Israel, why? Because when God made promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he said that he would bless them that bless them and curse them and curse them, he also said in thee, shall all families of the earth be blessed. So God intended that the Jewish people should bless all the families of the earth by bringing the oracles of God, by bringing what God said, by bringing the word of God, the Bible, to all the families of the earth. And in order to accomplish this, God sets, he had a special eye, and he sets the boundaries of the nations with a view on the number of the Jewish people so that they could reach them. So in this way, Moses is a type also of the Jewish people who were not only entrusted, the Jewish people, with the oracles of God, but they were made responsible to carry them to the peoples of the world. Now, in verse 11, we have Moses' response. And his response to God's call and God's sending is verse 11, it says, and Moses said unto God, who am I? who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses is saying, who am I? Said, I, me, I? So I should go to Pharaoh? I, I, me, I, I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Is that what you're saying, God? And that was Moses' response, he says. "What he said. And So here we see Moses clearly, he saw, Moses saw that God was sending him to do two things, to one, go to Pharaoh, and to, two, deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he looked at these two jobs very carefully, and he says, go to Pharaoh? He says, go to Pharaoh part. Okay, the last encounter that Moses had with Pharaoh, as we study that, is in Exodus 2.15, where it says, now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by what Moses knew that Pharaoh had purpose to kill him. Moses knew that, that Pharaoh had purpose to kill him, and it says Moses ran away from his face. He ran away from his face. He ran for his life. So when God, when God says to Moses, and Moses hear God saying that he wants them to walk right back up into his face, He's saying, so he, my, he hears his death warrant. He says, you want to kill me? Says, Moses. As far as delivering the children of Israel, Moses has already tried that. He has tried to deliver the Jewish people from Egypt, and he failed miserably. In the past, Moses had this desire. He had a desire. There was a strong desire in Moses' heart to free the Jewish people. So in that sense, he was on God's page. But the problem was is that at the time when he went to, to do it, he wasn't sent by God. He didn't have this meeting with God where God says, I send you. And so before, when Moses tried to deliver the Jewish people from Egypt, he looked at himself and he said, I could do it, I'm Moses. He said, I'm Moses, Moses can do it, can deliver the Jewish people. But that ended in Moses finding out that um, he couldn't do it. And in fact, he was running for his life out of Egypt and he was in no condition to deliver anybody. He was trying to deliver himself. So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, Moses had a very high estimation of himself, very high estimation. For the first 40 years of Moses' life as a prince in Egypt, as a... uh, a war commander, Moses thought that he was everything. It says in the Bible that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. See, Moses really thought himself, Moses thought he was everything. He really didn't think that he needed God. I mean, if Moses had a desire to do something, then Moses did it, and so Moses said, you know, there's no need for God, Moses thought. The only helping hand that I need is at the end of my arm. That's what he thought, in that way, Moses was a type of Israel Today, when you go into the malls across America and you encounter young Israelis who have come over to sell things in these malls and you start to talk with them and you begin to, maybe you start to talk to them about God and then we become shocked because most of them tell without any hesitation, oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I am an atheist. Yeah. And if they're not atheists, it's very clear that most of them feel no need for God at all and they feel that they can just make their own life without the need for God thank you very much and that's like Moses in the first 40 years of his life and that's why I say Moses is a type of Israel because for the first 40 years of Moses life Moses thought that he didn't need God he was everything he could do things by himself. And so in that way, Moses is a type of the Jewish people today, of Israel today, able to do whatever they want to do without any need for God. But when Moses was discovered as a murderer in Egypt and Moses was hunted, being hunted down for his life, Moses became a broken man. And so Egypt was too much for Moses, and Moses had to run for his life. And so in that experience, Moses was broken. He was a broken man. And in the breaking of Moses, He fled from Egypt, and so in that state there where Moses was broken, Moses is a type of Israel of the Jewish people in the future where God says in Leviticus 26, 19, I will break the pride of your power. That's what he says in Leviticus 26, 19. And I will break the pride of your power. God loved Moses too much for him to go on with the pride of his power, his power, his learning, his ability. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses was strong, Moses was proud of his strength. Moses was educated, Moses was proud of his education. Moses had ability, Moses was proud of his ability. All of that was the pride of his power, of Moses' power. And God broke the pride of Moses' power when he ran, when he was in that state of running out of Egypt for his life. Well, in the same way, God loves the Jewish people too much to let them go on in the state of the pride of their power. So he promises in Leviticus 26, 19 that he says, I will break the pride of your power, the pride of your power. That's, that's where they take pride in their own power, you know. Israel says, we are the technologically most advanced, you know, 10 times more technologically advanced than the U.S. We fix their Patriot missile systems and make them better with our Iron Dome and so forth. We have hidden technology and, well, on and on. And when anyone takes pride in his own power, he has a very high impression of himself And this is a very bad thing, because God says, this cannot continue, and he says, I will break the pride of your power. So when Israel, for example, was in danger of being absolutely annihilated by the Midianites, God called a man, Gideon, to save them. And there was a very great army of the Midianites who were assembled to wipe the Jewish people out, to kill them. And Gideon had in his army 32,000 soldiers. He had 32,000 soldiers. And so God started a process with Gideon to whittle down, to reduce the number of soldiers. So God told Gideon to, and if anybody's afraid here, that you just go home. So Gideon put out the call. If anybody's afraid, go home. So to his shock, 22,000 of his soldiers went home. And now he's left with just, 10,000 men. And then when God told Gideon, they had too many. He had too many with the 10,000. So he says, okay, bring them to a place here to drink water where they could drink water. And he says, I'm gonna try them. And then the trial was that God told Gideon to watch for the men who drank water, putting their hand down and cupping it up, you know, for a drink, which most of them did. And then he said, and then look for the men who drink water like a dog. He says, drink water like a dog. Because he says, I want the men who drink water like a dog. He said, like a dog. So the 10,000, 9, men cupped water in their hands to drink. And 300 men lapped water like a dog. And that was the description he used in Judges 7, 5. The one who drinks water like a dog. And so the God said, now those are the ones that I want. Just 300 men, <laughs> the ones that are like dogs, drinking water. And so why did God go through all of that process with Gideon, of taking Gideon's army and just whittling them down to 300 that he calls drink water like a dog? Because of what God said in Judges 7-2. And here's what he said. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, mine own hand hath saved me. See, God said that he did not want for the Jewish people to vaunt themselves against him. Vaunt themselves meant to brag about themselves, meant meant to take pride in their power, the pride of their power. He said vaunt themselves means they would put on display with their own pride and say, Look what I did. Look what my hand did. And so it says that that's why God said, If they do that, it's going to be against me because he said, Lest Israel vaunt themselves against me. And so pride is always against God. You know, this town is too small for two of us. Either it's going to be me, myself, and I, or it's gonna be God, one or the other. And so God wanted to make it impossible for Israel to say that they saved themselves with just 300 men that their own hand did it, especially when we look at the whole history there with the lamps and the breaking of the pots and so forth. So God did that so that it would be crystal clear that it was God who saved them and, not them and not themselves. He was breaking the pride of their power. So just as Moses was broken in Egypt, so the Jewish people will also be broken on the hills of Israel, where it talks about in the future, when all nations come against Israel, and that's not very far away, But it says in Zechariah 14.2, when this is really a description of God from Leviticus 26, of God breaking the pride of their power. And notice what it says in Zechariah 14.2, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is God's doing. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, or raped, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then he describes further in, in Zechariah thirteen eight through 9, I mean, when we read these verses in Zechariah, we're, we're reading newspapers of the future and not too far away and in Zechariah thirteen nine, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts, or two-thirds, shall be cut off and die but the third shall be left therein this is a holocaust which is twice as bad as the time of the nazis the nazis killed one-third of the jewish people this will kill two-thirds of the jewish people and then god goes on in verse 9 to says and i will bring the third part that'd be the surviving part i will bring the third part through the fire and we'll refine them as silver is refined, and we'll try them as gold is refined. It's no secret to us to know how you refine gold and how you refine silver. Heat, intense heat.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God.